Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I know it, it gets harder and harder to pay attention to political campaigns. Uh, I have the advantage of spending some time in England where they have the advantage of their political campaigns, the ones that they bitch about as being unbearably lengthy, start to finish six weeks. They've just finished one. You may be aware of it. Uh, the salient point to me, because I'm not that invested at this point in necessarily who wins and loses, but you know the process, as the Canadians like to say, the process the real losers in this week's British campaign, in which David Cameron returned to number 10 Downing Street, don't you know, is that all of the public, virtually all of the public opinion polls in the pre-election period were wrong. And not just a little wrong, big wrong, big bad wrong, to the point where they were saying that the two main parties, the Conservatives and the Labour Party, were so neck and neck, it was doubtful that either of them or any of the other minor parties was going to garner a majority in the Parliament, which was going to result in what they call a hung Parliament, in which case somebody was going to have to try to figure out how to divine a combination of parties, the way they do in Israel, you know, to make a, a plausible government. Not that any of them really is. And then... The election happened, and it was kind of, you know, not a landslide, but a little rock slide for the conservatives. And um, all those worries about, well, who, how are we going to have a, a legitimate government uh, were swept away. Now, the point is this. The public opinion polling business will concede late at night over drinks that the response rate of people that they contact by telephone has been going down year by year, uh, which means that the the folks who, pardon, pardon my Obamaism, the folks who respond to polls are now not an, a, uh, a random sample. They're a self-selected sample. They're the people who aren't ticked off enough about uh, someone calling them on the phone at dinner time to actually answer the phone and not hang up screaming. That's a, that's a pretty self-selected sample right there. And so you have polls that are taken so utterly seriously that the only questions that were asked by British media of politicians in the last few days of, the, of this very short campaign by American standards were, how do you, how, how, are you going to talk to this other party after the election? Are you going to make a, a, some kind of coalition? Are you going to make a deal? That is to say that the polls so veered the discourse away from issues like they should be discussed anyway. It's time, America. It's time, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you live, when somebody asks you your opinion about something, especially about your secret vote, it's time to tell them in mind their own business, which is not your business. Hello, welcome to the show.
the back of the room And me and my group would sit out in the stoop And we'd play for her The song she liked best to have us play From the edge of America, from the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news from outside the bubble. Well, there's a lot that's going on outside the bubble. American troops are training. Training! Uh... Ukrainian troops in the Ukraine. That's all. It always starts that way, doesn't it? But this from the Age newspaper in Melbourne, Australia, from their Middle East correspondent, new coalition shakes Syria's Assad regime. Remember Syria? Fighting with a sense of unity rarely seen in Syria's four-year-long civil war, a new coalition of opposition groups backed by the powerful regional alliance of Turkey, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia, has shaken the Assad regime with its advances. It took the provincial capital of Idlib late last month. Insurgents intent on overthrowing the Syrian regime have pushed towards the province of Latakia, Latakia, a stronghold of President Assad. The advances are a sign of the Assad regime's weakness, but also indicative of the strength of the new alliance between the three Sunni power brokers. Their desire to force a shift in the balance of power on the ground before further negotiations about the country's future are held to have finally overridden long-held regional differences. This regional group has forced these opposition groups and various factions fighting on the ground to fight under our umbrella, says Mario Abu Zaid, a research analyst with the Carnegie Middle East Center. Who's we? By creating this army of conquest and by supporting it, having the Nusra front as its main pillar and surrounded by remnants of the Free Syrian Army, this type of cooperation has been a tremendous success, said Zaid. The Nusra front, not mentioned in this story, is most often identified with Al-Qaeda. The Free Syrian Army remnants are most often identified as the moderates that John McCain thought we should arm. Have we? I don't know. But the story continues. The key player is still the Nusra Front, 
quoting Mr. Zaid. The Lebanese army, loath to be drawn into any attack on the region after several of its soldiers were kidnapped in August last year, has reportedly begun to mobilize in the area. The Nusra Front threatened to kill the soldiers if Hezbollah mounted an offensive in an area under attack. But far from retreating, the Assad regime has reacted to its losses by carrying out hundreds of airstrikes, barrel bombings, and chlorine attacks in rural Idlib, Hama, and Aleppo. According to a visiting fellow from the Brookings Center, the Assad regime also launched ground offensives in eastern Damascus, Homs, and in the mountains above around Zabadini. Recent events have clearly tipped the psychological scales back into the opposition's favor, said the um, visiting fellow from Brookings, noting Assad's severe manpower shortages are becoming more evident by the day, and Hezbollah is stretched thin as well, he says. But the upsurge in fighting has only worsened the misery and danger for Syrian civilians, with the International Committee of the Red Cross warning the humanitarian situation has deteriorated has deteriorated sharply, and the need for food, water, and medical supplies is more urgent than ever. This uh, comment follows the release of an Amnesty International report that warned civilians in the besieged city of Aleppo are suffering, quote, unthinkable atrocities, unquote, with many forced to try to live their lives underground in order to avoid attacks. According to the report, both the Syrian government and many of the armed opposition groups are perpetrating war crimes and crimes against humanity. So it's win-win. News from outside the bubble, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Eversall Jr., With less than 500 days until Rio de Janeiro hosts the Summer Olympics of 2016, construction of several venues has not started yet, and some major contracts have not even been let. Setting the stage for a last-minute rush that will likely drive up costs, according to Reuters. It may seem like a familiar script for major sporting events, but Rio may end up being one of global sports' closest calls yet, resulting in a race against time, that would inevitably inflate the current $13.2 billion price tag and add to the burden on Brazil's struggling economy. Around this time in the run-up to the London Olympics of 2012, almost 80% of venues and infrastructure had been completed. In Rio, only about 10% of 56 Olympic construction overlay and energy projects have been finished. The figures highlight a gulf in preparations that could put Rio in the same league as Athens in 2004, where only half the venues were ready five months before the start. In London, the power contract was announced 20 months before the Games began. In Rio, there are now just 15 months to go, and that contract is yet to be tendered. The supply of power to Olympic venues, a complex job that involves hundreds of kilometers of cable and thousands of distribution panels. The delay in power distribution can slow the progress of other projects which need to be designed and built in conjunction with the power supplier. 
But the Olympics are still certain to start next August 5, 2016. Quote, it means you just have to throw more money at the thing to get it finished, says Bent Flivberg, an Oxford professor who specializes in major construction projects. Throw money at it and hope it sticks and doesn't bounce. The head of rowing's governing body says races at next year's Olympics in Rio could be delayed because of severe water pollution at the venue. In an interview with the Associated Press, World Rowing Federation Executive Director Matt Smith said events may be suspended for a day or two if pollution spikes. But he said athletes are not at risk and there are no plans to abandon the small lake in central Rio where there was a massive fish die-off just last month. Smith says any risk in the lagoon is lessened because rowers have only secondary contact with the water. To row a boat on the lagoon, there is no life-threatening possibility, Smith says. I I can guarantee you that. That, ladies and gentlemen, you can take to the bank. And the bank is not Citibank. Says um, Simon Tolson, Secretary General of the International Canoe Federation. Who knew? Canoe. Asked about contact with the water, he says, quote, the people in the boats are supposed to stay in the boats, not in the water. And as local residents try to figure out what a Boston 2024 Olympics horse venue would mean for its local park, Franklin Park, where it's supposed to be set, a natural benchmark is London's historic Greenwich Park host to a similar venue for the Summer Games in 2012. This according to the Jamaica Plain Gazette in Boston. This is um, a story about a critic of the London 2012 Olympics. Supposedly, the Olympics upgraded Greenwich Park to a better condition than before, but Rachel Mahoud, a key protester of that usage of the park, told the Jamaica Plain Gazette this week that the Games left permanent damage, including hundreds of mature trees cut back or cut down. I'm afraid it is just not true to say the park was left in better condition than before, she said. She described the Olympic process as secretive and deceptive. As if that's a bad thing? Moving forward despite an anti-Olympics vote by the Friends of the Park group general membership. Heavy-duty security, including anti-aircraft missile batteries, had an um, in- impact on residents and local businesses, she said. I started out as agnostic about the influence and effect, she said in an email interview, but my experience of the London 2012 Olympics changed that. I believe the present-day Olympics movement is evil, lawless, divisive, incredibly destructive, unimaginably costly, unquote. Mahoud was a member of the group No to Greenwich Olympic Equestrianism, later became an unaffiliated Olympic pro- protester. She now chairs the Greenwich Park Conservation Society, whose work includes fending off further horse events in the park. As with Boston 2024, London's bid committee included its park in its venue plan with no public input and proceeded with secretive, abruptly changing plans, Mahoud said. Lack of information is deliberate, she says. The IOC learns from each game's how better to deal with the opposition. They've perfected the boiled frog procedure by the time the public knows how bad, disruptive, divisive, destructive the games are going to be. It's too late. I don't think that works with frogs. They know. 
She said Olympic planners used some rhetoric already familiar with Boston 2024, including appeals to patriotism and ill-informed promises to boost the park. She recalled a claim that the Olympics would put Greenwich on the map, where it already is, thanks to being the home of the Prime Meridian. Olympic planners, quote, deployed every trick in the book to try to avoid or limit scrutiny, she said, including submitting their first planning application just before Christmas. The tree cutting in the park was done to clear space for horses, vehicles, and TV camera angles, said Mahoud, typically under the excuse that it's necessary for the tree's health. The IOC is only interested in fantastic TV pictures, she said, adding that the Olympics' supposed commitment to environmental rules is, quote, all window dressing, unquote. She added the security was intense, describing high perimeter fences, snipers around the park, and a missile battery set up in an adjacent parkland. The park, she says, was turned into steel-fenced prison walkways over a year before the Olympics started. Security hurdles helped to make the Olympics, quote, a disaster for local businesses, she said. The Olympics was also not a one-time event impacting the park. A test event with horses was held a year before, and occasional events to stage equestrian events there continue. If Boston wins the 2024 bid, this London activist warns, the Olympic organizers will place their people in every group, institution, company that they need to control, and opposition groups will be infiltrated. The Olympics movement attitude is that everything must be subsumed to the Games, people must be dealt with in whatever way neutralizes their opposition, or enlists their unquestioning loyalty. Wow. What's got into her? The Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. Ladies and gentlemen, something's going on with police in America. The uh, number of stories just this week on this subject, more or less than coincidental, but certainly provocative. Chicago, for example, became the first municipality in the United States to pass legislation providing reparations for victims of police torture. Yes, the um, area known as Gitmo in Chicago. This landmark policy will allot financial compensation to the mostly African-American men. How did that happen? Tortured between 1972 and 1991 under a commander named John Berge and his infamous, according to Rolling Stone, Midnight Crew. The legislation gives victims access to psychological counseling, education, and job training, and mandates public schools teach about the torture. More than 100 victims are estimated to have been subjected to abuse under Berge and his cohorts, still suffering from the psychological aftermath, the victims, not Berge. People were electrically shocked on their genitals. People were suffocated with plastic bags, beaten with telephone books and flat jacks, whatever those are. Others were subjected to mock executions, says an attorney who's worked with victims of Chicago police torture for 18 years. In some cases, the torture led to false confessions, said the lawyer. Really? How could that happen? <laughs> that's just a, that's a happy coincidence. There's uh, one incident of, a, of an individual who was arrested at age 16 for allegedly starting a fire that killed four people in 19, 
81. He'd been beaten by a detective that worked under Berge, says the uh, detainee, and then had his genitals grabbed and squeezed. He confessed in order to stop the torture and then was sentenced to life without parole. He spent 28 Sorry, twenty yes, twenty eight years in prison before a professor working on a juvenile innocence project helped secure his release and clemency. Chicago has allotted five point five million dollars to be doled out to dozens of police torture victims, a drop in the bucket compared to the one hundred million dollars spent on restitution for lawsuits linked to Bergie's abuse and the twenty million dollars spent defending him and his team. The commander was never charged for crimes directly related to the physical violence he um, treated his criminal suspects to, but he was sentenced to a four-and-a-half-year prison sentence for lying under oath about the torture. A couple months ago, Berge was released from home confinement. So you can find him in the street. Buy him a cup of... Buy him a donut, won't you? And New York Times reports that, um, contrary to what you might think, There's uh, bad stuff happening in the police department in San Francisco. Disclosures of racist and homophobic text messages exchanged by officers of the SFPD, followed by the discovery sheriff's deputies have been gambling on forced fighting matches between inmates in jail. This week, the San Francisco district attorney announced he's expanding the investigation of the city's police and sheriff's departments to examine whether those agencies have a deep-seated culture of... Systemic bias that has led to unlawful arrests or prosecutions. The broadened inquiry made clear that even in San Francisco, it can be buffeted by accusations that officers behaved in a racially biased manner. African Americans in San Francisco, says the Times, have complained for years about harassment and the use of excessive force by the police. And then... There's Los Angeles. There was a uh, raucous town meeting in Venice, part of Los Angeles this week, where anger spilled out uh, as residents and activists blasted Los Angeles police officials over an officer's fatal shooting of an unarmed homeless man. The town hall meeting, convened two days after Tuesday night's deadly encounter, had police in the audience often shouting down, The speakers demanded to see a video of the shooting and to be given the name of the officer who fired his gun, says Deputy Police Chief Bea Girmala, the top-ranking LAPD official in attendance. We're here to listen. We're not here to be talking heads and pontificate to you. When she first mentioned the shooting, she was quickly interrupted by shouts of murder from the crowd. Folks in attendance, oh, I Obamaized again. The people in attendance were upset over the death of Brendan Glenn, 29 years old, a New York native who had been recently living in Venice. They also criticized Los Angeles for what many described as a lack of resources to help the neighborhood's homeless population and called on the LAPD to have better, LAPD to have better training for officers who interact with the mentally ill. Given the... Um, Parless nature of mental health treatment facilities in so many American cities, the frontline response to mentally ill people is so often police officers. Steve Soboroff, president of the L.A. Police Commission, said he wasn't surprised by the emotion he saw. 
said the city's Homeless Services Authority Commissioner. Where's the mayor? Where's the chief of police? I don't think they realized this person was someone people really cared about. Law enforcement officials said the a, a video recording shows the officer struggling with Glenn and successfully taking him to the ground. One source said it appeared the officers had control over him, but then one of the officers stood up and began to move away. As they as he did that, they said Glenn also began to stand up, and the first officer, standing a few feet away, then fired what appeared to be two shots. There's no audio on the recordings. The chief of police in Los Angeles, Charlie Beck, told reporters he had reviewed the footage and was very concerned about the shooting. He said he didn't see the supporting evidence that I normally would that would justify an officer shooting an unarmed person. Kind of old news. With a thin blue line and we keep getting thinner if you watch us work.
From the home of the homeless, this is Le Show. And from uh, fizz.org and Nature Communications comes a story that raises the question, who could possibly have anticipated unintended consequences? That's not within our grasp, is it? Research by an Indiana University environmental scientist and colleagues at universities in Iowa and Wisconsin and, and Washington. They have universities in Iowa? Interesting. Finds that potentially harmful growth-promoting hormones used in beef production are expected to persist in the environment at higher concentrations and for longer durations than previously thought. Quote, what we release into the environment is just the starting point for a complex series of chemical reactions that can occur sometimes with unintended consequences. That's the quote from Adam Ward, lead author of the study, assistant professor in the Indiana University School of Public and Environmental Affairs. He continues, when compounds react in a way we don't anticipate, when they convert between species, when they persist after we thought they were gone, this challenges our regulatory system, unquote. Study illustrates potential weaknesses, really, in the U.S. system of regulating hazardous substances. We have one, interesting, which focuses on individual compounds and often fails to account for complex and sometimes surprising chemical reactions that occur in the environment. Because we like it that way. And now, ladies and gentlemen. He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an Inspector, he peeks at no stoops. He's an Inspector General. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. News of Inspectors General, ladies and gentlemen. The Department of Energy has already spent more than $4 billion on a facility in South Carolina intended to dispose safely of weapons-grade plutonium leftover from the Cold War. But management problems, oversight issues, and high staff turnover by now... Rates have caused the project to go years behind schedule and billions over budget. By the time it's all over, the Mixed Oxide Fuel Fabrication Facility, the MOF, is projected to cost upwards of $47 billion. I got that on me. About $46 billion more than originally estimated, according to an analysis by the Aerospace Corporation. The U.S. is required to dispose of 34 metric tons of surplus weapons-grade plutonium uh, as per an agreement with Russia, back when we were making agreements with Russia. One of the safest ways to do that, according to the Department of Energy, is to convert the plutonium into commercial nuclear fuel via a mixed oxide facility. The plan would eventually be to sell the fuel to utilities companies, but there isn't a market yet for MOX fuel in the United States. Maybe we'd sell it to Belgium, Switzerland, Germany, or France, which do use MOX fuel. The Energy Department has suggested it might subsidize the sale of the fuel. Really? Because free market? The project in South Carolina is the first and only of its kind in the country. Years of setbacks and cost overruns have inspectors, lawmakers, and administration officials considering whether it should just be scrapped. Originally estimated to cost about $1.6 billion, in 2004, and to be completed three years later, management and oversight issues as well as technical problems have set the project back. Now, officials say it won't be completed until at least 2020. Inspectors blame the scheduled delays and cost overruns 
on poor planning. A report released by the Department of Energy's Inspector General last year said that the original cost estimate of just over $1 billion was established before the design work for the project was 90% complete. A senior VP of Arriva, the French company that's uh, a partner in running the plant, told the New York Times that getting and keeping qualified and trained welders and other experienced workers on the job was an ongoing problem. And, uh, you know, there's also the issue of having plutonium hanging around. And a battle for independence seems to be breaking out between the State Department and the federal watchdog in charge of keeping tabs on the $110 billion reconstruction efforts in Afghanistan. Last week, John Sopko, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, told um, Congress people that the U.S. Embassy officials in Kabul informed, informed his team out of the blue that it would have to reduce its staff by 40%. The IG said he was told the cuts were non-negotiable, warned that they could have a devastating impact on his team's mission overseeing the billions of tax dollars pumped into Afghanistan. The implication was that the State Department was attempting to muzzle a watchdog that has been extremely critical of U.S. reconstruction efforts in Afghanistan. Sopko has spent the past week raging against the cuts, arguing that the State Department, one of the federal entities his team investigates, has no authority to make staffing decisions for the Inspector General. But there's more news about Afghanistan. We'll take a a brief detour just to uh, spotlight this. According to Politico, It's hard to beat New York State when it comes to sheer volume of corruption. A criminal complaint this week against the state Senate Majority Leader Dean Skelos and his son Adam came just three months after charges were brought against the Speaker of the State Assembly, Sheldon Silver, having the top leaders in both chambers of the state legislature face criminal charges in the same session, is an unparalleled achievement. Skelos is now the fifth straight Senate Majority Leader in Albany, New York, to face criminal charges. New York State reports Politico is rich in corruption scandals due to a confluence of uh, circumstances. Albany is a highly insular place. Political scientists find that capitals that are far from the main population centers and main media outlets tend to be more corrupt. Isn't that a happy coincidence? Hello, Sacramento. More importantly, power in New York State is closely held Nearly every major decision from setting the state budget on down is made in private by the governor, the assembly speaker, and the Senate majority leader. It's a self-perpetuating system that makes any proposal for real structural change unlikely. Now to Afghanistan, where the Center for Public Integrity has come up with two reports. A group of senior U.S. military officials rendered a harsh judgment in private about the legacy of the 12-year U.S.-led intervention in Afghanistan. The officers concluded in a report for the Joint Chiefs of Staff that Afghanistan's ability to serve its citizens' needs remains directly threatened by a deeply entrenched (laughs) culture of corruption that not only defied the West's intervention but grew substantially worse because of it. The report, written by Division of the Joint Chief, Assigned to draw lessons for the future, 
was based on dozens of interviews with government officials and experts, and its judgments were approved by top commanders. Among the conclusions, U.S. military forces were unprepared to deal with a country where private deal-making dominated public policy-making. Early U.S. alliances with Afghan warlords helped solidify a corrupt leadership style and a climate of impunity. Washington made the problem worse by inundating Afghanistan with more cash than it could absorb in legitimate channels. And American military officers and civilian aid workers alike were unprepared to manage Afghan contractors, resulting in what the report said was, quote, the expenditure of millions of dollars with almost no oversight or alignment with other U.S. government efforts. Marine Corps General John Allen, head of the multilateral military force in Afghanistan, told the president directly, Obama that is, that corruption, not an incompetent military, not an inadequate police force, not the Taliban sanctuary in Pakistan, currently remains the existential struggle, the existential strategic threat to Afghanistan. Same week, the Center for Public Integrity reports this. U.S. soldiers have been selling the U.S. military's fuel to Afghan locals on the side, pocketing the proceeds, contributing to thefts by U.S. military personnel of at least $15 million worth of fuel since the start of the U.S. war there. Eventually, there are at least 115 enlisted personnel and military officers convicted since 2005 of committing theft, bribery, and contract rigging crimes valued at $52 million during their deployments in Afghanistan and Iraq. Many of these crimes grew out of shortcomings in the military's management of the deployments that experts say are still present, a heavy dependence on cash transactions, a hasty award process for high-value contracts, loose and harried oversight within the ranks, and a regional culture of corruption that proved seductive to the American troops transplanted there. Officials probing such crimes say the total is in the billions of dollars The former inspector general for Iraq, Stuart Bowen, says he suspected the fraud among U.S. military personnel and contractors was much higher than reported. John Sopko, the counterpart in Afghanistan, says his agency has probably uncovered less than half of the fraud committed by members of the U.S. military in Afghanistan. As of February, he says he has 327 active investigations still underway. You don't appreciate how much money is being stolen in Afghanistan, he says, until you get there. A U.S. government oversight official has again expressed concern about the absence of accurate information about how many personnel are serving in the Afghan army and police. That's the very same Special Inspector General John Sopko. He says it makes it difficult for Afghan military leaders and their American advisors to clearly determine the strength and capabilities of Afghanistan National Security Forces, and a Canadian journalist who first encountered Afghanistan's opium industry more than a decade ago says the country's drug production is flourishing in the very same regions Canadian and NATO troops were once stationed. And on a seemingly unrelated topic, last week this program shared with you the report from Current, the um, trade publication that follows public radio, about uh, the appearance by Ira Glass at a so-called upfront presentation for advertisers seeking advertisers for public radio podcasts. Not this one. And um, among the comments uh, Glass made in an interview with Advertising Age magazine, 
after the presentation. We didn't have this last week. Public radio is ready for capitalism. We need to stop. It would be great to stop asking listeners for money. Just for perspective, this is Ira Glass on a pre-recorded pledge drive message that has been heard on public radio stations all over the country. Can I just say, life is too short to spend it listening to ads. Well, that's not the way he was talking to advertisers last week in New York. But meanwhile in Kabul... From Afghanistan Public Radio, giving you driveway moments, but no driveways. From the abandoned U.S. broadcasting truck in downtown Kabul, so secure that we protect Blackwater, <laughs> I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. And if you ask me, he's insecure. <laughs> Welcome to Cars I Talk. Today's program comes to you with the assistance of the Warlords Foundation. Helping tomorrow's leaders be as ruthless as yesterday's. Well, my brother, mm-hmm. springtime is upon us, and that means birdsong, flowers, and the fighting season all revving up once again. Yes, my older brother, how I do love the smell of the fighting season in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Pizza high pollen count any day of the week. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the good news, of course, mm-hmm. is that due to the fine relations between the Americans and our new president, Mr. Hani, mm-hmm. Our well-trained and well-equipped army will have the advantage of continuing to have American forces along to pick up their equipment after they drop it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, if the Taliban want American equipment, they're going to have to get it the old-fashioned way, Mm -hmm. on the black market. (laughs) (laughs) Or they could skip the middleman and Mm. just buy it directly from the Americans. (laughs) Uh, Hello, you're on Cars I Talk. Not my real name. Mm. First time pseudonymous caller, long time clandestine operative. Oh, I think I recognize this voice. Oh, uh, Did you buy a Tundra for me with the anti-assassination package? I may have. Lots of people did. Well, welcome, my friend. How did the uh, vehicle work out for you? I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> well, accidents will happen. What can we do for you? Well, sir, uh, I was... Uh, personnel in charge of uh, dispersing cash payments to the uh, former president uh, for the purpose of uh, for the purpose of keeping me from going too far off the reservation (laughs) (laughs) well it's so unnecessary Mm -hmm. you had to stay on the reservation if you wanted to open the casino (laughs) Uh, that's uh, an amusing way of uh, literalizing a metaphor wow with phrases like that, this must be public radio. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, sir, I'm uh, authorized by uh, whoever does the authorizing back home to uh, ask you for at least uh, some of those uh, cash payments to be refunded now that uh, we've seen how how that all worked out. Oh, my brother, this is like the people expecting you to honor your warranties on used Corollas. <laughs> <laughs> we call them pre-owned. The people or the Corollas. <laughs> In uh, any case, sir, um, what did you say your name was? Uh, Carlos. Oh, I thought it was uh, Jason. Mm-hmm. Well, the name algorithm changes uh, randomly every five minutes. Ooh. In any case, those funds were duly received mm-hmm. and went to a good cause, uh, and they are at this point utterly untraceable. Uh, just out of curiosity, mm-hmm. what was the good cause? 
making the funds untraceable. <laughs> Thank you for your service. <laughs> it was and continues to be my pleasure. I'm sure well, it is. well, sir, in no way is this uh, anything but a question, mm -hmm. but uh, you are aware, aren't you, that if the funds aren't made uh, reavailable to the uh, funding authority, mm -hmm. this is going to have to be reported as a case of official corruption. Uh, Ex-official, on the part of an ex-official. Hmm? Uh, well. Sounds like a high-priority oh, issue. Oh, yes. <laughs> Color, mm. here's what I'd do uh, if I were you. Yeah. Your office receives a regular shipment of fuel to run your systems, doesn't it? Yes, but... Uh, and that shipment is made by a contractor working for your office? In a manner of speaking, I well, guess. Well, just sell some of that fuel each week or each month until you recoup. It'll be good for the planet, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the call. You know, a lot of people don't like our clandestine friends, but I'll tell you this. When it comes to knowing the ins and outs of the hardening package on the Tundra, nobody comes close to them. Well, nobody comes close to them anyway. That's the whole idea. <laughs> <laughs> you Hello, you're on Cars uh, I Talk. Hello, this is Sal. It's not an algorithm. It's my actual name. Uh -huh. It's uh, I'm a first-time caller. Long-time New York Corruption Commissioner. Sal, welcome. Last caller we had from New York, I think, went to uh, jail for corruption. Who was that some of your work? <laughs> uh, actually, in a way, it was. Mm. Uh, although, if it's uh, who I'm thinking of, that was just a case of uh, very good work going uh, a little off the track. Mm. Because? Because a stickhead got caught. <laughs> Look, fellas, I can only tell you about my experience. There's so much noise in the culture today about anti-corruption this, mm -hmm. and clean up that. Mm -hmm. It's hard for the young people coming up uh, to get a, a really good idea of how the system is supposed to work. Uh, what our commission does is run a series of uh, educational programs, you might say, uh -huh. including, very importantly, paid internships to uh, acculturate tomorrow's, uh, you might say, tomorrow's bribees to uh, the ways of the world. Uh, well, of course, we here, our new president here, is cracking down on corruption. Mm -hmm. At least until he can figure out a way to make his cut untraceable. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure it's going to come down on you guys at some point. Uh, uh, I like you guys. It makes me laugh to think that it makes some people laugh hearing you make each other laugh. Oh, thank you. It makes us, <laughs> it makes us laugh, too. <laughs> but are you suggesting something we should do in the face of an anti-corruption binge? Us taking advice that is so against format. <laughs> well, look, I, I don't want to go all uh, Ira Glass on your highness, but uh, you still take phone calls in your show for free, right? Well, it is our way of compensating callers for waiting on the line and for basically creating half of the content we're selling. Are you suggesting that we charge callers to the program? I'm just saying it's good for the audience. You charge each caller, you take more calls. That's just uh, human freaking nature. And that's better for the callers, too. Except for the charge. Hey, look, you, you could make the pledge drive longer and more annoying, too. I'm just saying. Well, I'm no lawyer. You're barely a Toyota dealer. <laughs> <laughs> but taking money to put callers on a public radio show would seem to fall under some kind of definition of corruption. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the call. <laughs> We had help today from the Najibullah Fund, helping Afghans on a journey to a world where everybody has a last name. Legal assistance for cars I talk from the law firm of Ketchum and Nukem. I'm Mahmoud. I'm Hamid. 
Don't broadcast like my brother. And join us again for the next edition of Cars I Talk. This is APR, Afghanistan Public Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, you may have noticed the um, the very harsh language that President Obama used on Friday of this week in addressing his Democratic Party colleagues who were opposed to the fast-track authority, that is to say the ability of the 
president to put a new trade agreement, in this case, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a trade agreement which has a lot of other provisions having nothing to do with trade, uh, before Congress for an up-and-down vote with no amendments allowed. And uh, very harsh, as I say, language in which he said, people who call this a secret agreement are just wrong. This from Politico. If you want to hear the details of the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal, you've got to be a member of Congress, you've got to go to classified briefings and leave your staff and cell phone at the door. If you're a member who wants to read the text, you've got to go to a room in the basement of the Capitol Visitor Center and be handed it one section at a time, watched over as you read, and forced to hand over any notes you make before leaving, and you can't discuss the details of what you've read. It sounds much more like the kind of provisions for congressional briefings of the secret NSA surveillance tactics than a trade agreement. It's like being in kindergarten, says one of the Democrats who's opposing the provision. You give back the toys at the end. Officials from the White House and the United States Trade Representative's office say they've gone farther than ever before to provide Congress the information it needs, and the transparency complaints are just the latest excuse for people who were never going to vote for a new trade bill anyway. Obama, in his statement on Friday, said the only thing people say in opposition to this is NAFTA, which contradicts what could be observed that since WikiLeaks leaked a secret or a hitherto unrevealed chapter of the proposed trade agreement relating to the so-called investor state disputes system where corporations could sue state and local governments inside the United or the federal government for regulations that prevent them from achieving their reasonably expected profit expectations. It would appear not to be just about NAFTA. Critics point out the cover sheets of the trade documents in that basement room are marked only confidential document, not top secret or classified, and note they're able to be transmitted over unsecured email and fax, but for some reason are still restricted to members of Congress. My chief of staff, says one congressional critic, who has a top security secret clearance, can learn more about ISIS or Yemen than about this trade agreement. Says um, one opponent from California, Obama is incredibly condescending. It's like you'd be all for this if only you hadn't gotten an F in economics. Fortunately, he doesn't talk to his Republican opponents that way. He's indignant when we say it's secret, says a Democrat from Minnesota, Keith Ellison, adding, quote, of Obama, maybe there's some definition of secrecy he knows that I don't know, unquote.
Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this not-so-secret edition of the show. The program returns to you this same time on the same stations next week on NPR Worldwide throughout Europe. You send 440 cable system to Japan around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ The Planet 7.490 megahertz shortwave on the mighty 104 in Berlin around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived, whenever you want it, harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through stitcher.com and available as a free podcast. Free! I said free podcast at SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, iTunes, and TuneIn.com. And it would be just like President Obama liking his Democratic colleagues publicly. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh. A typical show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile in Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. A playlist of the music heard here on. And the email address for this broadcast. And Cars I Talk t-shirts. Imagine. Don't imagine. You don't have to. They're all available at harryshare.com. And me, I'm available on Twitter at the TheHarryShare. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. <laughs>